Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for quieting down. Um, my name is Devon Kramer. Um, some of you may know me as Devon Harris. I did get married in May, so I do have a new last name. Um, I work in our Center for Intercultural and International Education Office, also known as CIIE, and it's located in the Union Building. So this convocation came about through a partnership of my office and the History Department. And it's a great segue into showcasing some of the exciting things that are happening in the CIIE office. Um, we've gone through quite a bit of transition this summer, and I'd like to highlight just a couple things. We have a new senior director, Gilberto Perez, who's formerly taught in the social work department. He's awesome, yes. Um, we have created educational partnerships with over 25 community organizations, ranging from churches, community centers, and a few chambers of commerce. One of the biggest things we like to highlight is we want to communicate that absolutely all students, all of campus, you are welcome to our space and our services. Please come by. Um, some of you who are in clubs, you need a meeting space, please come talk to us. If you want to use some of our services, some of our trainings, things like that, please, please, please. This is the year that we're really opening up our arms to everyone. All that to say, um, we'd like to invite you to our ice cream social that's happening next Thursday, September 25th, in our office from 3.30 to 5 p.m. We're going to have some awesome ice cream with different toppings, and at 4 o'clock, you'll hear more in depth about our um, community partnerships and our new initiatives. So we hope to see you there and enjoy convocation. Good morning. My name is Jan Bender-Shuttler from the History and Political Science Department. And I want to wish all of you a happy Constitution Day. Who would have known? <laughs> And I wonder if you all know that by federal mandate, all colleges and universities in the United States who receive any kind of federal funding, including your loans, need to celebrate Constitution Day. And the History and Political Science Department has been charged at Goshen College with doing that. And so we have grabbed hold of this, as embraced it as a wonderful time to be able to engage um, legal, political issues that are confronting our world today and to really be able to grapple with these things. And so what better issue than something which is in all the news right now, which is all of these thousands of child refugees arriving on the Mexican-U.S. border and getting into the court system here. And so we invited some immigration lawyers who are right in the, the thick of this this thing. So they are going to each talk for about 15 minutes, and they would like to have some time at the end where you can ask some questions or raise some concerns that you have. There are two mics, one at the end of each aisle, so be thinking of questions or ideas that you would like to put out to them, and we'll have a little bit of time at the end. But if that time is not enough, we have another session directly after this, uh, which is a student-led dialogue, and Aranza Torres is, is leading this with some others. Uh, that will be in the Koinonia room, which is just 
down the hallway here across from the big fellowship rooms. We'll sit around at tables, we'll have some time to talk to each other, and then to engage the lawyers about the issue of child refugees, but also more broadly, your concerns about immigration law, immigration reform, and some really good discussion. So please think about staying and being part of that. They have already talked with the pre-law club and with students interested in law. Um, so if you're interested in a career in law, here's a chance to engage uh, lawyers there. So without further ado, I am going to introduce the speakers um, in the order that they'll be speaking and then um, let them have at it. So the first speaker will be Lisa Koop, who is an Associate Director of Legal Services at the National Immigrant Justice Center. The NIJC is a legal advocacy organization dedicated to ensuring human rights, protections, and access to justice for all immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. They have offices in Chicago, Indiana, and Washington, D.C. NIJC provides direct legal services and advocates for these populations through policy reform, impact litigation, and public education. Lisa directs NIJC's Children's Protection and Asylum Projects. Lisa specializes in litigation, policy, and direct services advocacy on behalf of immigrant children and survivors of gender-based violence. Lisa heads NIJC's Indiana office and is an adjunct professor at Notre Dame Law School. Lisa is our alum. She is a 19... <laughs> she is a 1999, and she said she remembers sitting out there, uh, so she's having some nostalgia here. Um, she's a 1999 Goshen College graduate, and after completing two years of voluntary service in Harlington, uh, Texas, she attended law school and graduated mag uh, magnum cum laude from Indiana University, Indiana University McKinney School of Law in 2004. And we're thankful to Lisa for the way she's opened up some internships and jobs for our students. So we're really happy about that. Um, our second speaker then will be Felipe Marino, who is owner and managing attorney of Marino Law Firm PC. Felipe holds a BA with honors from Stanford University and graduated from Notre Dame Law School in 2001. He's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the Indiana Bar Association, the Goshen Bar Association, the Elkhart City Bar Association, and the St. Joseph County Bar Association. Marino Law Firm PC has offices in Goshen and in South Bend. Felipe not only represents individuals in criminal proceedings all over Indiana, but also fights on behalf of clients in immigration proceedings in the Chicago Immigration Court and has immigration clients throughout the Western Hemisphere. Among his clients are husbands, wives, mothers, parents, children. Felipe has the firm conviction that families are the fiber that our community is made of. And whether his client is a US born, U.S. born or is an immigrant relative, Felipe enjoys the opportunity to treat each and every one of his clients with the respect that he or she deserves. And here at Goshen College, we're also grateful for, to him for the way he has accepted our interns and later given them jobs. Um, so we're really happy to have both of them here. 
And the title they will be presenting on is Due Process and Child Refugees from Central America, Constitutional Compromise During a Time of Crisis. So welcome our speakers of today. Good morning and welcome to Constitution Day. We could spend the next 40 minutes talking about the First Amendment, reproductive rights, gun control, cruel and unusual punishment, voting rights, or any number of other worthy and fascinating topics. But instead, we're gonna talk about due process, which at first blush sounds just a hair more dynamic than the Commerce Clause. <laughs> but bear with me. Passion for due process should not be relegated to the world of law geeks. Anyone who cares about human rights, immigrant rights, children's rights, really any rights should be passionate about due process. Fundamentally, procedural due process involves notice and the right to be heard. Where constitutional protections apply, they require that individuals facing the loss of rights have a meaningful opportunity to contest that deprivation. In other words, due process demands that people be given a fair day in court. For immigrant children crossing the border into the United States, the right to a fair day in court is being compromised. First, because children are incapable of meaningfully serving as their own lawyers, and they're not provided with appointed counsel. In nearly every other area of the law, Children are considered to be legally incapacitated. A child under the age of 18 can't sign a contract for cell phone service. But in our immigration courts, kids far younger are tasked with representing themselves in the complex labyrinth of deportation proceedings. Second, the proceedings are fraught with improprieties that render them fundamentally unfair. Notices of hearings are sent to the wrong address. Court hearings are dramatically advanced with minimal notice. Government attorneys cross-examine children about traumatic events they can barely articulate, much less explain in a matter that approaches the evidentiary burden they must carry in order to win protection in the United States. Even with attorneys, the system is stacked against immigrant children. Without counsel, they don't stand a chance. Before we wander too far into the weeds of the intersections of due process and immigration law, let's back up a moment and confirm that constitutional protections actually do apply to non-citizens. The argument against constitutional rights for immigrants goes like this. If you aren't here legally to begin with, how can you demand that our judicial systems recognize your rights? The short answer is this, because the Supreme Court says so. There is a long line of cases, beginning with a case called Yik Wo in 1886, that state that due process protections contained in the Fifth and Fourteen Amendments of the U.S. Constitution apply to non-citizens. This holding has been reinforced throughout the ages and most recently was uh, reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in 2013 in a case called Moncrieff v. Holder, which I have to uh, mention my organization, the National Immigrant Justice Center, litigated as a friend of the court. That immigrants get due process is the right conclusion from a legal standpoint, from a human rights standpoint, and from a Christian standpoint. All human beings have rights, and no human being is illegal. In preparation for this talk, I dusted off my old constitutional law textbook 
and found the following passage underlined in a 1970 case called Goldberg v. Kelly. Justice Brennan wrote, the extent to which procedural due process must be afforded the recipient is influenced by the extent to which he may be condemned to suffer grievous loss and depends upon whether the recipient's interest in avoiding that loss outweighs the governmental interest in summary adjudication. Looking at due process in the context of immigrant children, it is difficult to conclude that any interest the government may have in summary adjudication outweighs the children's interest in avoiding grievous loss in the form of severe bodily harm or even death they fear if deported to their countries of origin. If you follow the news at all, it's impossible to have missed the vigorous debate spurred by the influx of Central American children. This federal fiscal year, which began October 1, 2013 and concludes at the end of this month, the number of children traveling without parents more than doubled from the previous year and exceeded 50,000. The vast majority of these children come from Central America's Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. All of them are under the age of 18. This year we saw significantly more tender age children or children under the age of 14. Some children as young as four traveled with older siblings. Teenage girls with babies brought their infants. After children enter the United States, most are apprehended by the Border Patrol. They are held in the custody of Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, in centers the children called yeleras, because the rooms they are held in are as cold as freezers. They are then transferred to the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, or ORR. They are held in ORR shelters until they can be reunited with family members or other caregivers in the United States, or until their deportation cases are resolved. My organization, the National Immigrant Justice Center, usually has initial contact with children when they are at the ORR shelters. There are about nine of those shelters in the Chicago area, which hold a combined capacity of about 520 children. We visit the shelters each week and provide legal orientations and screenings to the children. When we meet with these children, we strive to understand what prompted them to leave their homes. In more than 60% of the cases we review, we identify some form of relief for the child. However, merely presenting basic eligibility for immigration protection does not mean the child wins her case and avoids deportation. In order to access protection, she must navigate the system I referenced at the outset of this talk, an incredibly complex legal system that pits children against Department of Homeland Security prosecuting attorneys. I have a client in southern Indiana, we'll call him Eli. He's a Honduran boy who is an evangelical Christian. He was targeted by the gangs in Honduras. They wanted him to join the gang and smuggle drugs into rival territory. They believed that because he was Christian and he was known as an evangelical Christian, he could move undetected into enemy territory. When he refused and tried to run away, Eli was shot in the back. He survived, recuperated at a hospital, hid for a few weeks, and then fled to the United States. After entering through the southern border, he was arrested by Border Patrol, placed in deportation proceedings, and held in federal custody until he was released to his aunt and uncle. He is now seeking asylum because he's afraid he will be killed if he is deported. Honduras, Eli's home country, is the murder capital of the world. In July, the New York Times reported, children are killed for refusing to join gangs, over vendettas against their parents, or because they are caught up in gang disputes. Many activists suggest they are also murdered by police officers willing to clean up the streets by any means possible. In 2013, 1,013 people under the age of 23 were murdered.
That's just the kids. Eloy has, uh, sorry, Eli has experienced past persecution. He was shot. And he fears future persecution on account of a characteristic he can't change, the fact that he has resisted the gangs, and a characteristic he should not have to change, his religious beliefs that demand that he refuse gang membership. He meets the definition of a refugee and should win asylum. But even though Eli's case for asylum, which is otherwise known as refugee status, seems pretty clear, it is anything but. The case law on gang resistor asylum claims is muddled at best, and the evidentiary burden Eli must meet to prevail is steep. Additionally, his case is complicated by the fact that even though he is in deportation proceedings, a special asylum office, and not the immigration judge, has initial jurisdiction over his case. This is a good provision in the law, but it is challenging to traverse the parallel processes. Eli has an attorney. My coworkers met him when he was in federal custody in Chicago, and when he was released to his aunt and uncle in Indiana, I was able to keep his case. But Eli is an exception. Most children do not have attorneys. Unlike in criminal proceedings, where if one cannot afford an attorney, an attorney is provided for you, in immigration court, there is no appointed counsel. If a child cannot pay an attorney or find a nonprofit like mine to represent her, she proceeds pro se, which is Latin for on one's own behalf. It defies logic to suggest that a child receives a meaningful opportunity to be heard, or in other words, receives due process, when she appears before a judge in an adversarial proceeding without an attorney. And yet so many children encounter that reality. To make matters worse, at the height of the influx this, influx this summer, the government flirted with the idea of rolling back a law that provides special protections for children. The administration seemed to be contemplating, and certain Congress people were explicitly proposing, that the law that requires that the cases of immigrant children go before an immigration judge be repealed. If this happened, in order to access asylum proceedings, children would have to articulate a claim for asylum to the very officers who were apprehending them. And those officers would decide whether the children could remain in the United States and fight their cases, or whether they would be summarily removed or deported. The absurdity of this scheme is breathtaking. Children, beaten, weary and worn from their journeys, terrified by their captors, and traumatized by whatever made them flee in the first place, would be tasked with revealing the most intimate and frightening details of their lives very soon after apprehension to the very people who place them in handcuffs. For the record, this is exactly what happens to Mexican children at present because they are excluded from the aspects of the law that prevents summary deportation. From a legal standpoint, this system is essentially devoid of due process and, if implemented, would lead to the mass removal of children who are eligible for protection in the United States in violation of their rights. Yesterday, my colleague attended court in Chicago with a 17-year-old girl from Honduras and her 14-month-old son. The young woman was abused horrifically by her baby's father and finally fled to the United States to escape him. Had her immigration future been determined by an officer at the border, it's unlikely she would have disclosed the domestic violence. She would not have known that the persecution she experienced can form the basis of a successful asylum claim. The influx of immigrant children has been referred to as a crisis. Advocates have largely moved away from that terminology because it feeds into the fear-mongering that immigration restrictionists purvey. The writer of a human rights blog I follow called Wronging Rights put it into perspective like this, quote, speaking of refugee numbers, the numbers here are not actually that big. 
An estimated 52,000 children have come to the United States since October, which is the mass refugee flow equivalent of a hangnail. That's not even enough kids to sell out a One Direction show. The MetLife Stadium can handle 90,000 screaming Harry Styles fans per night. But I'm expected to believe that the entire rest of this great nation can't take 52,000 kids over a six-month period? End of quote. She's right. The numbers aren't that big, and the perceived threat to public health and or the American way of life is simply non-existent. What is at risk here is due process. Extracting or circumscribing due process inevitably compromises the integrity of our system and leads to violations of rights, lack of faith in the system, and ultimately chaos. And that is what we must guard against. In order to preserve the due process rights of immigrant children, the following recommendations should be adopted. One, children should be provided with appointed counsel. Two, existing legal protections must be maintained and strengthened, not withdrawn. Three, our asylum laws must be adjusted to recognize that children and families fleeing gang violence may qualify for asylum. Four, efforts to stem the tide of migrant children by shutting down borders and using military force to send them home, as is happening in Mexico, must cease. And finally, the U.S. government must support the development of, in Central America, must support development that promotes human rights and establishes environments that children and their families are not compelled to flee. Not every child who makes it to the United States, secures a lawyer, and has a full hearing before an immigration judge will win asylum. But that is not the point. The point is that we owe every child, every person, who is placed in removal proceedings a system that has integrity, that allows them a meaningful chance to be heard. Due process demands it, and we, as believers in justice and human rights, must ensure it is so. That was beautifully said. Spoken like a, two, a true law professor. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am off the cuff. Imagine a world where we have just laws, where we have equality in our system of justice. I want you guys to just for one moment, I'm not going to ask you to pray, but I, I am going to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes right now. I want to see everybody's eyes closed. I want you to think back to when you were 12 years old. What was your favorite thing to do? Think of your family in the picture, whoever that is, your mom, your dad, grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncle, caregiver. Think of those people and think of what you were doing when it was the most enjoyable thing that you did in your life. Now you can open your eyes. But for the grace of God, I would not be here today. My parents came to this country from Mexico in 1962. They were afforded the opportunity to be here because my mom had a border crossing card. And she would come over from Mexico and she cleaned the home of no less than one of the border patrol agents. Had it not been for that, who knows where I'd be today? I take very personal the stories 
that are being told. I take very personal what comes out in the newspaper. I take very personal the comments made about these children. Because but for the grace of God, each and every one of you would be one of those children. I don't know what your political inclinations are, and frankly, I don't care. I don't know how you feel about this situation far from a crisis. I don't know if you even like the current administration that's in government, whether at the executive or congressional level, and it doesn't matter. As a child, as a young child of two parents, one of which has a third grade education and the other of which has a sixth grade education, who have done everything from build homes here in the United States to clean homes in the United States, of common people, of multimillionaires, I will tell you that the children, given the opportunity to have survival needs met, like food, education, clothing, housing, safety, they wouldn't be coming through that border. They would not be coming through that border. They would be in their own countries with their family members, with their loved ones, where they speak a language that they know, where they're not looked at like some rare creature when they walk down the street and speak their language or aren't dressed appropriately. So when the children come into the United States and are subjected to these court proceedings in immigration court, first, they're not greeted into the United States as, as they may have thought that they were going to be treated. They were incarcerated. I have clients of mine that have told me that they were in sales with 100 other kids. 100. These are cells designed, designed to, to hold, you know, maybe half a dozen people. It's inhumane. And, you know, I, it's not that I'm a bleeding heart, okay? You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, we can't deal with all the problems of the world. Let's get it very clear from, from now on. I want to make it very clear for everybody, at least for the folks that are in this room, that the situation with, our, with the young kids coming from primarily Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, is completely on the other side of our failure to correct our national immigration system. They are apples and oranges, two completely different monsters. At the national level, we have the United States Senate that has presented a bill, a comprehensive immigration reform bill, that takes care of transitioning the folks that are here that have invested themselves in the United States and taking them toward a path of legalizing and getting them citizenship because they've earned that path and have paid penalties and have paid their way into the system and have also worked their way into complying with the law. On the other side, we have children, namely kids including clients of mine that are two years old. Can you imagine two years of age and being taken across the border of three different countries through the desert? Have any of you ever been to the southern border? 
Arizona, Nogales, El Paso, Texas. It is hot. I don't care what time of the year it is. Many times these kids are given a bottle of water and said, here you go, kid. Walk. Good luck. Godspeed. That's it. And for a two-year-old child to be in my office, he cannot articulate what he's been through. I've had children ages 12 and 13 come into my office that were making that journey, and some folks along the way thought it might be fun to take them off their path and go make them work for free. Slave labor. Anybody hear of that? A lot of kids going through that right now. Slave labor, unheard of. We're a nation of laws. We abolished slavery years ago, right? It's happening. And so the children come into this country, and, and I want to clear up a term that you've probably heard on the news or, or, or read in the newspaper. Uh, the difference between refugee and asylum. It's, it's essentially the same term except for refugee is if you're outside the United States and you're fleeing persecution, that's what you're asking for, is to be a refugee, to be protected. If you're in the United States, you're asking for asylum. I wrote this down because I want to make sure I get it exactly the way it is. You have to be able to show that you have a well-founded fear of persecution based on grounds of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a certain social group. What does that mean? Most of them are self-explanatory, but certain social group continues to evolve every day. The federal courts are deciding what includes certain social groups. I know that uh, some of you may be aware that recently uh, that term of certain social group was expanded to victims of domestic violence, which I applaud the federal courts for doing. Because so many of our women have been abused and battered. And no one has seemed to care. But for my mother, I wouldn't be here. She dealt with abuse. She dealt with all kind of treatment that had to happen for her to be able to get here. When someone's working along the border region and they're going back and forth, they deal with all kind of issues of abuse because of their gender, because of their inability to speak the language. And she was one of the fortunate ones that was able to get a border crossing card. They don't do that anymore. No. And so it's been discussed that the laws are set up in a way right now so that if you are from Mexico or Canada, you're, for the most part, summarily just sent back. Nobody asks any questions. If you're from one of the non-contiguous countries, you get some semblance of due process. But as we all know, as we've, as, as we've heard, that due process is limited by whether or not we can afford legal counsel, whether or not we have access to legal counsel. And some of the nonprofits, great nonprofits, are helping out with that kind of thing. 
when people go into those proceedings, we like to think that we have certain constitutional guarantees, right? You all know what Miranda warnings are. You all know that you have uh, the constitutional right to not incriminate yourself. Well, guess what? Immigration proceedings, they've been deemed to be administrative in nature, civil. So you don't have the same constitutional rights. That poses a problem for a lot of folks. So one, you have to either build this super strong case that you are an asylee based on persecution on these factors that have to be, that have to uh, go past the burden of proof for the government or you can fall into, for the kids, special immigrant juvenile status. A lot of people don't know about this, but they are informed of it because my clients have walked in uh, after being detained at the border. They do a health exam because they want to make sure that nobody's bringing in tuberculosis or polio or other uh, illnesses. Uh, and, and so they're examined, they're incarcerated, they're, uh, uh, well, they, 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 tell, they say they're housed, they're incarcerated. And, and held there until a family member is located or some, somebody with direct link to the family. And I, I mean, they're very strict about that. And this is part of the reason why uh, there's so many kids detained right now. Because they want to see some blood lineage. They want to see birth certificates, documentation. And so that's why they're having a hard time housing, housing these kids. There are plenty of social service agencies throughout the United States that could absorb these children in the meantime until they get their due process, but that's not happening as frequently as it should be. So these kids need to now, if, if they want to be able to protect their rights, if they want to be able to survive here in the United States, they need to be able to not only deal with immigration proceedings, but in order to qualify for special immigrant juvenile status, they have to deal with state court proceedings. Two different animals. So you need a state court judge to enter a finding that says that this child is either abused, abandoned by one or both parents, or neglected. And the judge has to find that it would be in the best interest of that child to not return to their country based on the circumstances and based on the fact that they have somebody here to protect them and take care of them. And those findings have to be made by the state court judge before the child can move on to immigration proceedings. Now I ask you, return back to that moment that we started off with when you were 12 years old, enjoying your family, enjoying your youth, when you didn't have a care in the world. Right now you guys are thinking about what you're gonna do with life after graduation. How many years am I gonna be here? What am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay back my student loans? But when you were 12, you were thinking about that stuff. You were thinking about having fun, what you were going to eat for lunch. That was what you were thinking about. Think about a 12-year-old boy in Honduras in a small village where pickup trucks drive through the village on a weekly basis, picking up anyone that's 10 years and older. 
and saying, jump on. We're going to go teach you how to shoot. We're going to teach you how to sell drugs. And you, young lady, you're not going to be beholden to us. You're our new girlfriend. Sounds rude, sounds crass, sounds intolerable. That's what happens. And you know what happens if those children refuse? They are told that if they don't get on that truck, that they will come back for them. They should inform their parents and let them know that tomorrow they should be on that truck. And if they are not, their parents will be executed. Their home will be burnt down. They will be no more. They will cease to exist. And one of those little boys, he made it across. He made it across multiple borders. He made it past immigration authorities in Guatemala, made it across federal agents in Mexico, made it across a desert that most of us wouldn't be able to survive across, made it here, land of the free, home of the brave, made it to the place where our Constitution is not just a piece of paper. It's a living document that's supposed to be real for each and every one of us. Where it stands for something. And that boy comes into my office and he didn't want to tell me any of this. He says, I, I asked him, I said, were you interviewed? Yes. The officer asked me if I was scared of anybody. And I said, yeah, of you. People are interviewed for credible fear, which is a legal determination on whether or not they should be able to stay here. Children need psychologists, they need therapists, they need caregivers so that they can open up. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a caregiver, I'm not a therapist, but as a lawyer, I learned when I went to law school here at Notre Dame that I could be a different kind of lawyer. I could be a healer if I put my heart to it and my mind to it. And so I take a holistic approach and I listen to my clients. I listen to these children that walk in the door. And I build a relationship of trust because I know that up until that point, up until that point, there has been no trust. There's been a person in a uniform on the other side that says, answer these questions or else. In the meantime, you're gonna be held with all these other kids until we decide that we find somebody or we decide what to do with you. A child should not be put in the position that they're being put in right now. This child left. His family sold everything they had because they had already lost an older sibling. 18 years of age, the truck came through and says, how did you escape us for so many years? He'd been hiding every time the truck came through, but that day he was outside. The 18-year-old did not get on the truck, so they executed him there. So when this boy went into his parents and said, the people in the truck came by, and they said, if I don't get on, that you're going to be dead tomorrow. 
I love you guys, as he cried and cried, and he says, I'm going to go get on tomorrow because I don't want anything to happen to you. His parents sold every last thing they had. They sold everything to send him to the United States of America. And they fled, possibly never to hear from him again. They fled to another part of the country so that these individuals wouldn't come back. Well, this boy through distant relatives got word that the next day that crew did come back. The crew came back and because his house was empty, they went to the neighbor's house where they took two young boys out in front of the house and executed them as a message. You leave, you die. Pass the word on. I don't know about you, but I think back to my childhood. What a privilege I had to go to school here. I was born in Bellflower, California, and not a day went by growing up that my mom didn't remind me, but for the grace of God, you'd be in Tijuana, Mexico right now, selling gum on the streets. If any of you ever crossed the border to the northern part of Mexico where kids are selling little packets of chiclets, for those of you that know, trying to get a dime, a quarter, whatever they can to survive to help their families. She'd tell me, but for the grace of God, and that's what I want you to leave with today. Know that but for the grace of God, those children, each and every one of them, that are coming through our legal system right now, that would be you or your children. And many of you think, well, you know, I was born here. My parents are born here. I want you to look at that great lady that's off the coast of New York. Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty. Give me your poor, your hungry, your huddled masses. Many of our brothers and sisters, grandparents and ancestors came from Europe. And many of our ancestors, brothers and sisters came from the other side, from the Pacific, and continue to come for this promise of not for them. They, they don't want great things. These kids don't dream of grandeur. They don't come and think about taking up social services and, and taking up the tax-paying money of everybody here. They just want to survive. They want to live. Now the choice is yours. If you decide, are these kids taking up our resources or are we standing up and making our Constitution a living document by standing up for their rights. Thanks for coming today. Okay, thank you so much to our guests for um, informing us. We just have a few minutes, but I want to get the conversation started and then we'll move the conversation to the Koinonia room. So if any of you have questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to say,
come up to one of these two mics and the lawyers can respond to you after that. So please come. Anyone? One more chance? Don't want to cut anyone off? Okay, we will then um, move that conversation to a more intimate space. Please, you're welcome in the Koinonia room. We'll have a chance there for more interaction. Thanks for coming.